Proverbs chapter 5, verses 15 to 20, page 639. Drink water from your own cistern, running water from your own well. Should your springs overflow in the streets, your streams of water in the public squares? Let them be yours alone, never to be shared with strangers. May your fountain be blessed, and may you rejoice in the wife of your youth, a loving doe, a graceful deer. May her breasts satisfy you always. May you ever be captivated by her love. Why be captivated, my son, by an adulteress? Why embrace the bosom? of another man's wife. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Father, we would hear you speak to us this morning. Give us ears to hear your words of wisdom. And Father, we know uh, these words touch on issues that are sensitive and delicate and uh, deeply personal. So we pray for such confidence in your character, your goodness, your graciousness, that we would open our hearts to you and let you speak into our innermost lives. And we pray to you for the grace, not only to hear your wisdom, but to receive it and to live it. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> uh, one of the wonderful things about the, uh, the, uh, the book of Proverbs, it seems to me, is that it paints a, a holistic picture of the Christian life. Uh, it reminds us that the Christian life is meant to be, in the words, in fact, of Mark Green, it's meant to be a peach, not an orange. Which is to say, it's not meant to be split up into compartments. We were made to be whole. And when we turn to Christ, and when he moves in to us by his uh, spirit, he comes to transform and to renew our whole lives. He comes to put broken people back together again as he renews, as he remakes us in God's image. And this morning, God would speak into our married lives, and indeed into our sex lives, not as the prurient killjoy that God is so often portrayed as, but as the loving Father who created us as physical beings to enjoy our physicality in the way that he created us too. It needs to be said that into a world that has made sex a god, an appetite that must be acted on, an act so elevated that it is seen as an essential component of life, the church, I think, has been guilty in the past and may indeed in the present to some extent, have been guilty of portraying sex as gross, as sort of a necessary act for the production of children, but woe betide you if you find it fun. But the Bible rejects both of those views as destructive misunderstandings of sex. 
Sex, like all good God-given things, has a power, both for good if rightly used and for ill if wrongly used. It exerts a pull on us. If you ask the question, is sex good? It's a bit like asking the question, is fire good? It entirely depends on the context. Yes, in my fireplace, no, in my lap. And so it is with sex. Is sex good? It depends on the context. Yes, within marriage, where it belongs, where it warms, where it glows. But anywhere else, the Bible says, and it burns. And as we start, you know, I am aware that uh, these words uh, may not necessarily be easy to hear for uh, those of us who are single this morning, particularly, I guess, those of us who are single and struggling with that singleness. And let me say uh, straight away that I want us as a church to, to get better at supporting each other. That is to say, both support in whatever age and stage we find ourselves, supporting uh, married couples in their marriage and also supporting uh, single people with their singleness. But this morning, this is a text that is focused on marriage. Some of us will be single, not yet married. Some of us, I guess, will be single, but now sort of widows or widowers. If that is you, then I want to say that actually I, these words still speak to you. Uh, if you're uh, sort of single and, and, and looking ahead to a possible marriage, then of course these words speak into that future marriage. But they also speak to all of us, all who, find them, all who are single, in the sense that they, they paint a picture of Christian married life. And if we're going to support each other, it's hugely helpful for us to all know what Christian married life should look like. So that as a church family, we can be supporting each other in it. Proverbs 5 is a chapter that extols the wisdom of sexual faithfulness and warns us of the folly of sexual unfaithfulness. And it the verses we had read sort of split into two, really. Verses 15 to 17, the emphasis here is resisting unfaithful sex. Resisting unfaithful sex. Have a look again at those verses. The writer writes this, Drink water from your own cistern, running water from your own well. Should your springs overflow in the streets, your streams of water in the public squares, let them be yours alone, never to be shared with strangers. See, the writer exhorts us to sexual faithfulness. There's a stress on the word your. It runs all the way through. It carries on into verses 18 to 20 as well. The focus of that word, the stress of that word, the emphasis is not so much on possession as it is on partnership and exclusivity. There's a wonderful portrait of marriage in the book of Proverbs. It speaks a lot about marriage. And at the heart of it is this picture of partnership of mutual support, of facing the responsibilities and the challenges of married life together as one unit. One of the Hebrew words used to describe the spouse comes in uh, Hebrews 2, uh, sorry, Proverbs 2, and it's the word aloof. And it's the word that speaks of comradeship, of companionship, of, of, of your closest friend. That is the sort of picture that uh, the book of Proverbs paints of what, by God's grace, a marriage can be and should be. Tim Keller, uh, an American pastor, has written a wonderful book on marriage, which I read recently, called The Meaning of Marriage. And sort of speaking on this theme of, of marriage as a partnership, he writes this. I thought it was very helpful. He said, quote, When over the years someone has seen you at your worst and knows you with all your strengths and flaws, 
and yet commits him or herself to you wholly, it is a consummate experience. To be loved but not known is comforting but superficial. To be known and not loved is our greatest fear. But to be fully known and truly loved is, well, it's a lot like being loved by God. It is what we need more than anything. It fortifies us for any difficulty life can throw at us. That's the idea. Comradeship, companionship. And sex, of course, is given as a tangible expression of that intimacy to express and to complete and to deepen the unity that has been created by the marriage vows that we exchanged on our wedding day. The Bible makes that point time and time again. Sex binds us. It, it commits us to another. And so it never belongs with a stranger, but only ever to our spouse, the one to whom we have pledged intimacy, the one to whom indeed we have forged and created an intimacy through the exchange of vows on our wedding day. And so sex outside of those marriage vows, be it premarital or be it adulterous, is a sham because it is the pledge of a commitment not made. It is the expression of a unity that does not exist. And it is profoundly damaging. Derek Kidner is a, a British theologian who's written a wonderful little commentary on the book of Proverbs. And he sort of summarizes the many and the varied warnings of Proverbs against adultery. And he says this Against so high a view of marriage, sexual sin is presented in the darkest of colors. It is a squandering of powers that were designed for the founding of a true family. That should be one's own. It is an exchange of true intimacy for its parody, a parting with one's honor and liberty. It is to throw away one's best years and possibly one's last possessions. It is to court physical danger and social disgrace. And that is not all. Those who think to explore life this way are flirting with death. It is a sin that sears the sinner inescapably. Chapter 6 of Proverbs says this, Can a man carry fire next to his chest and his clothes not be burned? Or can one walk on hot coals and his feet not be scorched? So is he who goes in to his neighbor's wife. None who touches her will go unpunished. In other words, when it comes to adultery, there are no winners. There are only losers. Sometimes the damage will be physical. Sometimes, indeed, often it will be emotional. It will always be spiritual. You may well know the statistics on this, the various studies that come out. I, I read one this week saying of, that of all the things that can happen in a marriage, of all the problems, adultery is the one most likely to lead to divorce. And what is held up by adultery is entirely illusory. Only about 10% of those who commit adultery go on to marry the person they committed adultery with. And of those 10%, 70% of them separate. What it holds out is illusory compared to the joy and the delight of that aloof, that lifelong companion. We need to say, at this point, do we not, that sexual sin is not the unforgivable sin. There is, praise God, forgiveness at the cross for any and every sin for those who seek it. And there'll be some here who need to hear that, I guess, and to hold on to that in particular this morning. 
But friends, we, we, we have to heed the warnings here. And my guess is that those of us who have been burned would want us to heed the warnings here. Sexual sin is serious, and the devil would love us to fall into it. He'd love us to fall into it. We need to be realistic. Uh, The devil wants every married man in this room to have sex with somebody who isn't his spouse. That's what he wants. And he wants every married woman to have sex with somebody who isn't her spouse. That's what the devil wants. And we need to realize that and take it seriously. We need to be those who talk about it with trusted Christian friends who help each other to live God's good design for marriage. There are practical steps we can take. Have a look at verse 8. We, 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 we jumped a little later than that, but verse 8 is striking. It's, still, it's talking about adultery still. It personalizes it here. But verse 8, keep to a path far from her. Do not go near the door of her house. The imagery there, of course, is one, one of the ways we can avoid adultery is by keeping far away from temptation, keeping clear of it. And heaven knows we live in a society where it's increasingly easy to wander close to danger, isn't it? I was reading again how Facebook is, is, is fueling so much sexual infidelity. Because it's so easy. You, 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 you're sitting there and you suddenly think, well, I wonder what this old flame is doing now. And you, and you Google it, and you, or Facebook or whatever it is, and you find, oh, so-and-so. You, start, you, you send a, you know, a message and a message comes back. And before you know it, you're starting to engage in conversation and remember why it is that you first liked this person in the first place. And it's so easy to go from there. The office, so easy to find yourself having lunch more often than not with the same person who you find it so easy to talk to and seems to understand me in a way that my spouse doesn't. And before you know it, the thing you're really looking forward to on a Monday morning is having lunch with whoever it is. So easy. Keep far from that door, Proverbs says. The statistics tell us that, or at least they imply that... uh, Some of us, perhaps many of us here this morning, will be battling with the temptation of pornography. And again, we need to have a realism, and we need to be open and honest with each other here. It is profoundly destructive, spiritually, uh, pornography that is, and it is profoundly destructive sexually, of course. Again, all the studies show that it does nothing but desensitize us. It makes us feel inadequate with our own bodies, and with the bodies of our spouse. It is a profoundly erosive thing in marriage. And friends, we need to have Christian friends, brothers and sisters, whom we have that level of trust, and we're that confident in God's grace, that we don't feel we have to shield these things, but we can come and we can speak and we can help one another. Got to keep clear of that door, verse 8. One aspect of sexual morality is keeping clear and self-control. But I want you to notice, actually, that's not the focus of Proverbs 5, 15 to 20, our bit of Proverbs this morning. That's not the focus. Sort of uh, stoic self-denial is, is, is one aspect, but, but here in verses 15 to 20, the antidote that it gives to adultery, do you notice, is sexual delight in one's spouse. So it's not just keep clear of temptation, it is keep close to your spouse. That's what he's saying, isn't he, in verses 18 to 20? May your fountain be blessed, and may you rejoice in the wife of your youth. A loving doe, a graceful dear, may her breasts satisfy you always. May you ever be captivated by her love. Why be captivated, my son, by an adulteress? Why embrace the bosom of another man's wife? 
So resist unfaithful sex. And one of the ways we do that, the writer of Proverbs says, is by rejoicing in marital sex. And the language here is erotic and it's ecstatic. It mirrors the language in the Song of Songs, if, you're, if you know that book. And it is pleasure and not procreation that's in view here. Now, procreation, of course, is one of the great reasons that God gave us sex. But here, that's not in view. Here, pleasure is in view. God wants us to have fun in the bedroom, is what the writer of Proverbs is saying, I think. The God of the Bible is a God of joy. He could have designed us to bud like amoeba, but where's the fun in that? He didn't. He designed us to enjoy one another physically. And so sex is to be a thing of joy, and and it is to be regular in marriage. I take it there. It uses the language of um, at all times and always. I don't think he's saying, you know, you need some sort of unsustainable pace or something. But I think, you know, I mean, the point is, of course, that if sex is to be intimate and mutual and loving, which is the only sex the Bible countenances, then husband and wife need to discuss and agree on what suits them both in terms of uh, sort of regularity. But nevertheless, this is calling us to regular sex within marriage. Uh, neither party should want to deny the other. Quite the opposite. Both husband and wife should want to please the other physically and to rejoice in that physicality. I was reading, um, this, this made me smile, I was reading it back in the days of the Puritans. Uh, there was a story told, of a, um, apparently true, of a woman in New England who um, went to the pastors to complain that her husband was neglecting their sex life. And the pastors got together and decided to put the husband under church discipline. And uh, they they threw him out of membership for a while. And it made me smile. But actually, that's true. That's good. The pastors were right. The Bible says, do not neglect your sex life. It's part of our discipleship. Paul puts it like this in 1 Corinthians 7, verse 5. Do not deprive each other except by mutual consent, and then only for a time, so that you may devote yourselves to prayer. Then come together again so that Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. It's it's the same as Proverbs 5, isn't it? It's the same idea. A healthy sex life is one important... It's not the only, but it's one important antidote to adultery. Now, sex, of course, is designed to change and to grow as we get older, but the change in the nature of our sex lives doesn't have to mean a deterioration in the joy that we find uh, our sex lives to be. So it's to be regular. And secondly, there is something here about the, uh, the quality, if you like, of our sex life. Have a look at verse 19. You see the word there, may you ever be captivated by her love. The word translated, that's a good word, captivated, but actually I think the Hebrew is even stronger. It is the word for intoxication. It's the same word used if you're you know, intoxicated by alcohol. So he's saying your physical relationship is to be intoxicating. It's a feast for the senses. Verse 19 again, verse 19a, we should find each other physically, visually wonderful, physically wonderful. I think in verse 19 there's a sense of him rehearsing the beauty of his spouse, isn't there? I read a great quote, which I'm going to pass on to you. I thought this was really helpful when it comes to thinking about beauty. Again, in our culture, which is so warped, uh, notions of beauty. Uh, one writer said this, God does not give us a standard of beauty. He gives us spouses. Unlike other standards of beauty, a spouse changes over time. This means if your spouse is tall, 
you are into tall. If your spouse is skinny, you're into skinny. If your spouse is 20, you're into 20. And when your spouse is 60, you're no longer into 20, but rather into 60. And if your spouse used to be skinny, you were into skinny, but now you're into formally skinny. Now, I think... (laughs) I thought that was absolutely superb. Absolutely superb. That is spot on. That is spot on. We're to delight in our spouse. Our spouse, whoever that is, that is our standard of beauty, the Bible says. That is our standard of beauty. We rehearse their beauty. The point is from verse 19, friends, I think we're not to be embarrassed by our sexual desires for our spouse, in our sexual responsiveness to our spouse, to our physical enjoyment. Indeed, we're to revel in it as God's good gift to us. The point is that we are to be head over heels in love with our spouse, and our sex life flows from that and will be similarly intoxicating. Two dangers here where I don't want us to, to misunderstand what Proverbs is saying. Two dangers quickly. First, sex is not a performance. Okay, it's not done to impress. It is done to express love and build intimacy within marriage. It's not a performance. It is a way of serving our spouse. It's never to be self-centered. And we need to hear that in a culture, I think, where sex on a screen is increasingly warping people's understanding of what sex should look like with profoundly destructive results. It's not a performance. And secondly, it's not paramount. Please hear me on this. Sex is significant, but it's not the foundation stone of a marriage. The Bible is clear. We do not build a marriage on passion. We build it on the promises that we made on our wedding day. But I think Proverbs 5 and elsewhere are saying that we can and we must build a passion on the promises that we made on our wedding day. Indeed, it seems to me that the promises that we make on our wedding day are the things that create those conditions of trust and commitment and security and intimacy that are the catalysts for a lasting passion that develops over a lifetime. Good sex presupposes intimacy. It flows from the quality of our relationship. And if we're not building our relationship on the vows that we made, to love and to serve the other, well, then we'll never enjoy the sex life that those vows were intended to fuel. The nature of our passion might change, but the foundations remain, and the depth of the passion they support need never waver. And this is a passage that encourages us, even commands us, to make our sex lives as healthy as we can. Not to neglect them, but to enjoy them as God's good gifts given for our our enjoyment and as a means to protect us from adultery. So we shouldn't be indifferent to sex. Uh, We need, uh, all of us here who are married, need to see our sex lives as part of our discipleship. This and countless other passages in the Bible tell us that we should. Think about what it means to have a distinctively Christian sex life within our marriage. There are lots of books and resources out there. As I say, I read recently Tim Keller's new book, The Meaning of Marriage, and I commend it to you. It's very good. We also run here something called The Marriage Course, which is a course um, written by folk at Holy Trinity Brompton. 
And if you've not done the marriage course, can I commend it to you? Philippa and I did it a few years ago. We found it hugely helpful. By the way, it's not something for which you go to if your marriage is in crisis. It's for everyone. It's just a really healthy MOT to take stock of where you are. It's a great course, biblically rooted, common sense, covering everything from communication to forgiveness to good sex, which is a really helpful session on uh, the relational and the physical aspects of a healthy sex life. We're going to run it after Easter. Phil and um, uh, Moyne Lawton-Johnson will be running it, and the details will come out as we get a little closer to it. But if you've not done it, I commend it to you. It's a really helpful course. Lastly, the thing to say here is uh, one of the statistics that they quote in their book is that 40% of women and 30% of men will experience some kind of problem in their sex life at some point in their marriage. And the point it makes, friends, is that problems can be worked through, but not if we bury them, but only if we talk about them. Only if we are secure enough within our marriage, secure enough within our church family, secure enough in the grace of God to raise these things, to talk to our spouse, to talk to trusted Christian brothers and sisters, to talk to the pastors, possibly even to go and seek professional help if there is a deeper issue involved. But most problems can be resolved with better understanding, better communication, prayer, and availing ourselves of good godly counsel. So let's do it. Friends, let's not just bury these things, because there it becomes profoundly destructive. Good sex flows from a good relationship. That takes time. It takes effort. And this passage, I think, calls us to give it. All of us are sexual sinners at some level. None of us are strong, and that is precisely why Christ came. Christ is the friend of sexual sinners. And as we think about keeping close to our spouse, let us keep close to our ultimate spouse, the Lord Jesus Christ, the one who is quick to forgive those who repent. Let's keep close to him, the one who would teach us sexual wisdom. Let's keep close to him, the one who would give us the grace to live it. Amen.